This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Just this past Wednesday, the Supreme Court decided Janus versus the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. The Federation is a public sector union in Illinois that represents state and local employees in the collective bargaining process, and Illinois law has, until now, compelled all those who work for the state to pay an agency fee to the union if they did not join the organization. Mr. Janus, a child care specialist in the Family Services Department in Illinois, said this denied him the right of free speech as he was being forced to support union positions in the collective bargaining process with which he disagreed. He thought the union asked for too many employee benefits at a time when Illinois was going bankrupt. In a 5-4 to four decision, the Supreme Court agreed that his free speech rights had been denied. To discuss the decision, I have with me today Clint Bolick, uh, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court for the State of Arizona. Thank you, Justice Bolick, for joining me today on the Education Exchange. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you. Well, since we've known each other for so many years, I hope I can still address you as, as Clint. And, and I'll still call you Professor Peterson. No, I'll call you <laughs> oh, no, you can call me Paul. Okay, Clint, now the Supreme Court just overruled a longstanding precedent. Call, uh, Abbott was decided many, some, I think, in the 70s, and it said specifically that agency fees could be collected. Now, Justice Alito wrote the opinion for the majority. How can a conservative justice ignore the principle of stare decisis? <laughs> Well, that is an issue on which I feel very strongly. You know, all of us take an oath to the Constitution. We do not take an oath to the stare decisis uh, doctrine. And uh, Justice Alito, in his lead opinion here, really took, took pains to explain why, in this instance, he would depart from the stare decisis doctrine. He explained that it's very important for the orderly process of the rule of law to honor past precedents. But there are some instances in which you would depart from that practice. And uh, among them are uh, whether the decision was a constitutional decision. And, and, you know, unlike a statute where if a court gets the interpretation of a statute wrong, the legislature can correct it. But if the court gets the interpretation of the Constitution wrong, the only way you can uh, you can cure that is to amend the Constitution. So, uh, so courts are much more likely to revisit constitutional decisions than statutory decisions. Uh, he found that this particular decision, uh, the Abood versus uh, Detroit. Board of Education decision going back to 1977. Oh, I mispronounced that. I said Abbott. Okay. It's a boot, a boot. Yeah. Okay. Um, it had. It, it was a particularly poorly reasoned decision, but not only that. Uh, but that uh, it was an unworkable decision. The decision has been uh, been trimmed back on many occasions since 1977, precisely because it was very difficult uh, to effectuate, um, especially because it's so difficult to uh, determine what a union can permissibly charge in an agency fee. They can't charge for political activities, 
But what is a political activity is in the eyes of the beholder. And as, as a result, the court found, a uh, majority of the court found that this was really an unworkable decision. And the time had come in Justice Kennedy's swan song decision to finally discard an unworkable precedent. You know, Abood had uh, this uh, provision saying that some expenses could be chargeable because they were just for collective bargaining and other char- and other things that the union spent money on were political activities or ideological activities and money couldn't be spent on that. And they had to tell the non-union member who they were going to charge for the collective bargaining activities uh, why they were going to be paying 80% of the total or why it was 80% and not 60%. And so uh, actually, Alito sends in his, says in his opinion uh, that the, when they told people, they would say, well, we spent so much on this and so much on that, that they just decided, you know, in terms of salaries, they never explained why. That's right. It, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the court found in this case that 78% of what the union would, would ordinarily charge uh, would be charged to non-members of the union. And uh, the court pointed out these are hugely broad categories, like you mentioned salaries, millions of dollars attributable to salaries. Well, does that mean that none of those salaries are being used for political or ideological purposes? Well, guess what? It's the union deciding which of of the uh, which of its expenditures are chargeable to uh, the non-union members and which are not. And in order to, to, uh, uh, to, to challenge that, you would actually need to hire not only an attorney, but really a forensic accountant to go through these items line by line. And, and the court concluded that that was simply too high of a burden to place on uh, individual non-union employees. Yeah, but Justice Kagan uh, said that actually that this was commercial speech and not uh, and it was the speech of the an employee of the government and government can regulate the speech of employees as was decided in the Pickering case. Um, uh, how does Alito respond to that point? <laughs> Well, and I think I think that's a, you know, the dissent makes a, a pretty strong point there when they say, hey, of course you can, as a public employer, you can tell your employees not to go out and, uh, you know, and commit crimes. Uh, you can you can tell them not to, uh, on the job, uh, while you're on the job, not to engage in political activities and, and so forth, just like a, a private employer can. But what Alito said was, hey, this is, this is all speech about important public topics, uh, even the collective bargaining um, system itself. And uh, it's very difficult to extricate what is speech for uh, about a public, uh, an issue of public importance, or a purely private type of speech like your normal workday speech. And Alito pointed out, for example, that collective bargaining itself uh, can tremendously add to the debt of a state. Uh, it can, it can uh, tremendously increase the costs. 
and just the amount of compensation, the amount of pensions and so forth, the types of things that are negotiated in a collective bargaining agreement uh, really touch upon some of the most important public uh, policy uh, issues that, that are uh, before us. And in Illinois' case, in this particular case, uh, the issue of employee compensation and the issue of employee pensions uh, are exactly what what motivated the state to cut back on these agency fees because they they have added tremendous burdens to the state. So so the majority basically said you cannot say that this is simple workplace speech. This really goes to the core of uh, of public policy and public expenditures, and as a result, you cannot compel people to. Uh, uh, to pay against their their will. Uh, the, the, what I thought was the most interesting uh, phrase from the opinion is is that this is compelled speech in which, and I'm quoting the majority here, individuals are coerced into betraying their convictions, and that's uh, that's really how. Uh, Justice Alito and his colleagues in the majority saw this. I, I enjoyed the fact that the uh, op opinion actually talked about uh, school issues. Uh, it makes it really clear that this opinion applies to education, to teachers, to school districts, as well as to the particular agency uh, that of uh, that Mr. Janus was employed by. I mean, he, he, Alito says something to the effect that there are lots of collective bargaining issues such as merit pay for teachers, teacher tenure, uh, and, and, and uh, other benefits for teachers and so forth. So he really brought the teachers into the, into the middle of the opinion. That's absolutely right. This is really the first time that the court has gotten into exactly what this compelled speech is all about. And, you know, just the existence of, uh, uh, of a union that is chosen as the exclusive bargaining agent, um, that in and of itself, as Justice Alito points out, is, is, is really a, a very profound matter of public policy. And for Mr. Janus, the decision not to be a part of this union um, was characterized by the majority as really a rejection of 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 everything that the union stood for, and uh, as a result of that, requiring him to pay seventy eight percent of what he would have to pay if he were a willing member of the union um, was considered to be uh, a a pretty substantial violation of freedom of speech by the majority. Uh, Clint, um, Justice Kagan in her dissent says that the majority is using the First Amendment uh, clause, uh, the freedom of speech clause of the First Amendment as a weapon. Now, what does she, what does she mean by that? Why is she accusing uh, Alito of using free speech as a weapon? Well, I think uh, what she's saying is that this is this is really a, a thinly disguised attack on public employee unions, and that uh, uh, by using the First Amendment, it's really constitutionalizing an, an issue that really should be a matter of, of bargaining between the union um, and. The, uh, the the members of the union and the governmental entities with which the union bargains. Um, and 
really the the purpose of of requiring agency fees for non-union members is among other things about labor peace we have this apparatus of collective bargaining we have uh, the national labor relations act that that orders many uh union relationships with employers though though not this one because it's a, a public one but we have this huge apparatus and and it works really really well and when you inject uh freedom of speech and first amendment issues into this you're really basically declaring war on this entire model and i think you know th- this is certainly not uh by far not the the first case to get into the issue of con- compelled speech it doesn't simply apply to unions but these issues have have been litigated in the context of mandatory um membership in state bars they've been used to litigate issues regarding mandatory student fees so so uh you know i think that the majority has it right that any time the government compels an individual to contribute to uh to a particular form of speech it raises these uh these compelled speech issues uh so i think that um uh that uh justice kagan who who ordinarily is a, a pretty uh reliable uh defender of the first amendment i think that she is trivializing to an extent the the uh uh the role that the first amendment should play in these kinds of of coerced relationships well she says that it's going to raise havoc with the relationships between government and, and employees and and she points out that there's this uh, the problem of the free rider uh, political scientists uh, talk about the free rider problem all the time that a free rider is when you let somebody else do all the work and you just ride on free it doesn't cost you anything and that's what she says these non-union members do they don't pay the union dues that are necessary for the union to uh, do what they need to do to be effective in the collective bargaining process. So, so how does Alito respond to that, uh, that kind of uh, sensible point that you, you, a lot of people might just say, okay, I don't want to bother paying the dues if I don't have to? Now, again, I, I, I agree with you that these are sensible points. Uh, this was a, a really uh, very, very vigorously fought-out uh, decision. And the what's underlying her premise is that these unions are obligated to represent the interests of non-members as well as members. And so the, the free rider situation here um, is you know I, I, it's it's uh, I think it's a, a significant uh, uh, issue. Um, Alito responds to this really in in three ways. First of all, he points out that in 28 states, agency fees are already illegal, and unions continue to represent uh, both members and non-members in those states. Uh, so the uh, the pandemonium that the dissent points out in reality simply hasn't been shown uh, to be the case. The second point that Alito makes is that the unions understand that they are obligated by law to represent non-members as well as members, and yet they are still 
very eager um, to seek out these uh, exclusive representation uh, relationships, and that uh, the uh, the unions gain a tremendous amount of power uh, by being the exclusive representative in, in collective bargaining, and uh, that the free rider problem is, is simply one that the unions understand when they seek these relationships. And then finally, Justice Alito points out that that doesn't have to be the norm, that uh, a union can negotiate uh, so that um, um, uh, non-members could be required to pay on a per-service uh, basis for services that they um, uh, that they want but are not otherwise paying for. And an example of that would be a grievance-type situation. Right now, uh, most unions are required to, to support even non-members in grievances that they may have against their employers. And uh, Alito points out, hey, if, if, uh, if you have a non-member who's not paying any fees whatsoever, it's totally fine to charge them for discrete services. Um, and that may be one way that unions respond uh, to this, so that instead of, of paying for everything or paying for uh, everything that a union considers to be um, uh, attributable to, uh, uh, to non-member costs, it could simply be a cafeteria-style uh, system where if, uh, if a non-member wants the union to do something for that person, uh, they would just pay on a, on a fee basis. So those are good arguments that Alito makes, and, and the one that's uh, particularly convincing to me is he says, well, look, there's a lot of states already which have this uh, rule that you can't charge non-members agency fees, so uh, it's not wrecked havoc in these states. But then she turns it back on him, and Kagan says to him, well, look at this thing is going on in some states and not other states. Why don't we let, in this American federal system, let the states decide for themselves whether they want this or not? How do, I mean, Republicans have been arguing this for years and years and years. <laughs> Federalism is the way we handle controversial questions. So how does he respond to that? <laughs> now, you know, and th this is always a, a clever argument to, to turn against conservatives who are, you know, typically uh, apostles of, of federalism, uh, but certainly not, um, uh, you know, not every issue uh, is is amenable to resolution on a state-by-state -state basis. And Alito says uh, that, you know, basically the, the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment and other provisions of the Constitution are, are the baseline uh, of the protection of individual rights. And, of course, states can experiment with, with public policy. Um, you know, the situation was very much reversed in, in Zelman, the school choice decision, where the, the liberal said, hey, hey uh, you know, we have uh, a First Amendment Establishment Clause here, and, and all school choice programs violate that, uh, whereas uh, the more conservative uh, members of the court uh, that won the day on that issue said, no, this is uh, not a violation of the Establishment Clause. Um, but, you know, I think everyone on the court agrees that the First Amendment trumps federalism, 
um, uh, using the word Trump in a uh, in a as a verb, <laughs> in the old fashioned the old old fashioned way. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, the. Um, uh, here, Alito simply says, "Hey, if this is a violation of of freedom of speech, and we have held that that an individual cannot be compelled to support uh, political speech, then the First Amendment prevails, and that's not a violation of our principles at all." Well, uh, listen, Clint, this has been a fascinating uh, discussion of a very important case that's uh, played itself out before the Supreme Court. But I have to ask you one last question. Uh, what do you think is the right person to replace uh, Justice Kennedy on the Supreme <laughs> Court? <laughs> well, you know, I have to say that um, the best possible outcome would be to clone Justice Neil Gorsuch and to, <laughs> to do, uh, do a second time uh, what the president and the Senate did the, the first time. He has been uh, an amazing justice, really uh, professing uh, in, in real uh, practice his fidelity to the text of the Constitution. The New York Times today paid him a huge con compliment, uh, calling him uh, the most consequential freshman uh, in in uh, living memory. Um, and for the Times to to acknowledge the impact that Gorsuch has had uh, is is quite uh, quite remarkable. Um, I was not familiar with Justice Gorsuch until I actually did research for you on his education decisions, and that's what made me a big fan of Justice Gorsuch, or ju then Judge Gorsuch. And as a result of that, I would not endorse anyone yet on his list, because there could be another Gorsuch sleeper on that list who I'm not familiar with. But I would say that uh, of the people on, on the list, I am very familiar uh, with Judge Don Willett um, on the Fifth Circuit, uh, Judge Don Diane Sykes, um, and, of course, Senator Mike Lee, and I think any of those would be outstanding nominees. Well, thank you, Justice Bullock, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I have been speaking with Justice Bullock, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court for the state of Arizona. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern Time. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange.